Hi, I'm Kate Dearden, and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. Russell King has been teaching and researching the topic of migration for more than 50 years. In this episode, he is interviewed by Sarah Hannafin about thinking beyond the dominant frameworks of how and why people migrate. This ambition has led him to study return migration, retirement migration, student migration, and most recently, migration motivated by love. He also reflects on working with and being inspired by his students over the past decades. Professor King, welcome to the Migration Podcast. From such a wide area of research, I wonder if you would just start us off by telling us about what brought you to the topic originally and specifically to Southern European migration as an area of research. I've been working on migration for more than 50 years. So I really have to wind back my memory to the early 1970s and the University of Leicester, which was my first teaching job. And there, one of the courses that I taught was a course on the regional geography of Western Europe. And that contained a component on migration, as it was then in Western Europe, which was mainly about uh, labor migration. And my interest really sort of was developed on from, from there. The Southern European connection goes back even further to my PhD, which was not on migration. My PhD was on land reform in Southern Italy. So yeah, in the late 1960s, I was actually cycling around Southern Italy on my bike, interviewing farmers who had benefited from the land reform and, and sort of recording their experiences. So from, from, from that, I became fluent in Italian. Uh, and therefore, when I started teaching about uh, uh, migration a few years later, uh, Italy was uh, the obvious place to um, start. And my specific interest um, in, in terms of research was actually stimulated by one of my students at the University of Leicester who came from a small town called Bedford to the north of London, which has quite a large Italian community who came over in the 1950s to work in the brickyards. And uh, he did a really good undergraduate thesis. His name was Peter King no relation to me. That's just a coincidence. Um, he did a really fine um, undergraduate thesis uh, on the Italian community in Bedford, which I was supervising and I got involved in, in visiting the place myself. And then my first real piece of field research was to go to the villages where the migrants came from, because many of the migrants had come to Bedford through a process of chain migration. So they came from just a, a small number of villages. And so I went and visited those villages and interviewed uh, families of migrants who had gone to, to Bedford, return migrants, migrants who were back visiting on holiday and so on. And that, that sort of stimulated my interest in return migration and also doing work in, in Italy. The first sabbatical I had, uh, which was I think in 1977, I took at the University of Malta uh, on a British Council scheme and taught at the University of Malta for a semester and also involved the students that I was teaching there in quite a large, collect because there were about 30 students, in quite a large collaborative project on, on Maltese migration, which it, again in, involved a, a significant component about return migration as well, um, because Malta, although it's a small country, has had a very, very long and deep engagement with migration and return migration. Interesting that the undergraduate dissertations that were stimulated or brought you to this and from which you really never come back and how those small ideas can evolve 
So to look at the return migration in the year 2000, you described it as the great unwritten chapter in the migration story. Um, uh, and clearly that has evolved and there's a lot more published on return as an aspect of migration. And for me, as a child of a migrant, as somebody who researches the experience of the second generation of Irish migrants, it has opened up a space. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit more about the experience of the children and that second generation. Again, actually, I go back to this first piece of fieldwork that I did in the villages in southern Italy that were connected to Bedford. And I still have a really clear memory, even now, sort of 50 years later, of an interview that I did with a returnee family who'd gone back to this village in Calabria and had opened a bakery. And this family had two teenage children, two teenage girls, who I also interviewed and, and talked to in a very sort of informal way. And that made me realize, you know, how tough it was for them to be taken back to a village sort of pretty much on the top of a mountain, miles from anywhere. So different from their experience of growing up in, in a multicultural town. I mean, Bedford, although it's relatively small, is incredibly multicultural because as well as the Italian community there, there are communities from many other migrant sending countries like uh, Jamaica, um, Pakistan, um, India, uh, Poland, and, and, and so on. Um, and so they were really struggling with their readaptation re back to the homeland of their parents. So that was the kind of very first sort of small insight into the problems of the second generation on the one hand and return migration of the second generation as well. And I, I guess that, that idea of, of second generation return lay dormant for quite a long time in my research profile, let's say. And it was resurrected a lot later by one of my PhD students, Anastasia Christou. And, you know, you mentioned the role just now of some undergraduate students in stimulating interest. I think you know, even more so, the PhD students that I have supervised over my career have also been really instrumental in, in kind of leading my research in different directions. Um, I've been fortunate to supervise, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure exactly what the total is, but it's somewhere between 60 and 70 PhD students. And, um, you know, they have all been brilliant in, in, in kind of stimulating my own research ideas as well. And working with Anastasia on the Greek second generation return got me back to thinking about the second generation and, and particularly return migration. Another thesis that, that dealt with the same kind of issue was Zana Vathi, who looked at uh, Albanian uh, uh, second generation in, in different European cities. So again, I, I want to emphasize this point of, of the role of, of PhD students in, in um in stimulating my, my, my research endeavors. Right now, yeah, I'm working on the book with Milay Klinch, uh, who is a, a Turkish scholar based in Helsinki, uh, who I initially worked with when she was a master's student in Sweden. We were both in Sweden at the same time. Myself was visiting professor, and she was doing her master's uh, in European studies. And we started a project then, which initially became her master's thesis and, and now is, has, has been part of her postdoctoral work, uh, with me has been about the Turkish German second generation return phenomenon. And we feel kind of that is interesting for a number of reasons, not, not least because the biggest single migration in Europe has been from Turkey to Germany on, at a, at a quantitative level. That's, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's, 
the largest um, European migration um, channel, let's say, system. And uh, a surprising number of second-generation Turkish Germans have gone back to uh, to Turkey for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, very few of them for economic, for strictly economic reasons. Uh, they've gone back for family reasons, for nostalgia. Some of them have been deported because they were involved in criminal activities, and so because they still had Turkish citizenship, the German authorities repatriated them. And and so my interest in second generation return has evolved through these various phases, you know, going back, in fact, 50 years or so, but still very much an ongoing interest that, that I have. And yeah, one final strand of this sort of ongoing research on second generation return is another wonderful PhD student. I have Diana Grosser, who's looked at the children of Latvian return migrants who've been taken back to Latvia. In this case, I suppose you could almost call it a forced return because the children are taken back when their parents return. Uh, and again, it, it goes back to this Italian example that I, I recounted um, just, just a little while ago. Uh, you know, what, what happens to those children who are taken back when they're you know, 10, 12, 14 uh, and put into a very different educational system? I mean, Dinah's research has been focused on, on more specifically on the educational experience of um, children who are taken uh, from one educational system, you know, partway through their school career and plunged into another educational system, which is very different. I mean, a different language, a different academic curriculum, a different pedagogic uh, system, um, still post-Soviet and therefore quite sort of um, authoritarian in, in learning methods. Uh, and so um, she, with a little bit of help from me, has been you know, researching those second generation experiences. And I mean, talking about the second generation return as a whole, I mean, what, what so often happens is is that what starts off as a sort of narrative of hope and you know reunification with the homeland, one's identity, turns into a bit of a nightmare because you know there's lots of disappointments, lots of disillusionments. The the, the culture of the homeland is, in in terms of living there full time, is not as they imagined it would be, and their imagination of how it would be is partly taken from, from their, their, their parents and the family narrative of what the homeland is like. And it's partly based on holiday visits, you know, which tend to be taken yeah. when everybody's in a good mood, the sun shining, you can go to the beach and so on. And then living in, in a, a Turkish uh, small town, maybe in the middle of Turkey, full time, you know, during the winter is a completely different experience. Um, I'm just taking the Turkish example here. So I felt it was really interesting to un unpack these these longer term experiences and second generation return, you know, which are not necessarily very positive. Although in most cases, the returnees, if we can call them that, do come to terms with a new life and they build a new life and, and they develop their agency in a way which you know ultimately is satisfactory. So it's not necessarily straightforward, but it's often about a matter of adaptation to change. Um, Absolutely, and yeah. recognizing, I suppose, the difference of places and and the small differences. I think that the everyday is really interesting in that context. The sort of the, it's not the holiday. The holiday was one important aspect of creating a connection, but it's the day to day putting petrol in the car or going to the dentist or you know those kind of things. 
That's where yes. you really notice the differences. It's really interesting, Sarah, that you put your finger on on this this term place. I mean, I'm, I'm a geographer, and of course, place is absolutely intrinsic to the study of geography. And the experiences that returnees have are crucially dependent on the place that they return to, which is not necessarily the place that they originally came mm -hmm. from. Yeah. Um, so much of many studies of return migration um, tend to show that when people go go back, I mean, either the first generation or the second generation, going back to where the, the, the ancestors came from, or, or maybe even to their birthplace, which might be a small remote village. And, and of course, that's why emigration took place in the first place, because that village held you know, very little in terms of livelihood. Going back to that village is, is really you know, taking a backward step. So in many cases, what returnees do is that they look for better places in order to sustain a better livelihood and, and have maybe a more organized and, and cosmopolitan uh, lifestyle. So to go back to the Turkish-German case, I mean, we, we built the issue of place deliberately into the research design. So Neil, I interviewed firstly in Istanbul, which of course is the biggest and most um, cosmopolitan uh, dynamic city in, in Turkey. Uh, then she interviewed um, a, a large quota of returnees in Antalya, which is a, a large seaside resort on the south coast of Turkey. And then for the rest of the time, she traveled around Turkey in small towns and, and, and more rural provincial areas, you know, sniffing out uh, second generation returnees wherever she could find them. And actually, there were relatively few on the ground because, you know, not that many of the second generation eventually went back and settled in their parental hometowns. Basically, uh, it, it was in Istanbul if they wanted to develop a more professional career, or in Antalya if they wanted to develop a livelihood connected to tourism, uh, using in particular their, their, their languages, their German, their English, as well as their Turkish. So place is absolutely crucial to the experience of return migration. So one of your most cited papers published in 2002 towards a new map of European migrations and that explored a range of possible motivations for migration which were beyond the traditional binaries that we have been using such as this typical labour migration or moving for economic need and there were a number of different predictions back in 2002 about European migration. Would you like to tell us a little bit about one or two of those or did your predictions come true or where we are now? Well, thanks for uh, picking up that paper, uh, Sarah. It was one of the papers that I remember particularly enjoying writing because it enabled me to kind of think maybe in a slightly more creative way about uh, the field of migration studies, which I saw at that time and, and, and in fact ever since the 1970s as dominated too much by labor migration, refugee studies, and the kind of the race relations sort of paradigm. So I thought in order to try to get away from that, you know, sort of hegemony within migration studies, I would try to think about other forms of migration, and particularly those that were not driven by the economic imperative. I mean, having said that, I would want to emphasize that pretty much all uh, migrations have some kind of economic context, some kind of economic underpinning. Um, so... The economics of migration are always there. Um, but having said all that, I was interested to open up debates on other forms of migration, some of which either before or subsequently had researched myself 
through you know winning research grants to, to study these things. So one of them was international retirement migration, which I researched with Alan Williams, Tony Warms, and Guy Patterson in the late 1990s. So we studied basically British retirees in the south of Spain, the Algarve, Malta, and Tuscany. And the book that came out of that is called Sunset Lives. So another another form of migration, which is likewise not really driven by economics, although again, there are economic underpinnings to it, is international student migration and the wider field of youth migration. So going back uh, 20 years or so to the early 2000s when I wrote that paper, there was very little um, research on international student migration. Now it's become a real growth area, partly because it's really easy to research students, <laughs> international students, because they're there in your, in your universities and in your classrooms. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty easy, it's sort of low-hanging fruit, so to speak, in terms of, uh, you know, much easier than, you know, going to a refugee camp. And then another, another form of, of migration, which I, I sort of highlighted in that paper, was what I've called love migration. I mean, pe- people who migrate for romantic reasons. Um, and I developed that along with another ex-PhD student and, and now professor, actually at Leicester University by, by coincidence, Nicola Mai. And we, we co-edited a special issue of the journal Mobilities under the heading of Love, Sex and Migration, Love, Sexuality and Migration. So we felt that the whole sort of romantic, intimate, emotional side of, of migration had been underplayed. And I, I tried to kind of identify that as a, an area of future research. And one of my current PhD students, Yvonne Salt-Clark at the University of Sussex, is writing up a thesis, which she actually calls the Love Migration Project, uh, in which she has interviewed uh, a large number of um, young migrants, mostly young graduate migrants in different European cities, Brussels, Barcelona, London, who have migrated basically for love. They've moved from one country to another in order to be with their partner. Uh, and this also seems to me to be a powerful and underappreciated aspect of the motivations for migration. So again, uh, those small ideas have grown and it's the same as with the return migration as well. Just establishing it in a, a paper 20 years ago helped to open a space for the discussion and help the idea to evolve and grow. I suppose for all of us with our research, it's finding that nugget that you can build on and develop. Thank you, Professor King, for your time. And there's a lot of us researchers who have been able to build on your work. So thank you for making that space for the variety of different types of migration, something that we can think about and develop and discuss further. Thank you, Sarah. Russell King is an Emeritus Professor of Geography at the University of Sussex in the UK and a visiting professor in migration studies at Malmo University in Sweden. At Sussex, he founded the Sussex Centre for Migration Research, the MA and PhD programs in migration studies, and was the editor of the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies from 2001 to 2013. He's been teaching and researching migration for over 50 years. If you enjoy the Migration Podcast, please consider liking and following us. Thanks for listening.